reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our, on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for uh, the joy it is to gather as the body, uh, to, to sing, to hear your word preached, to confess together, and also be just renewed in, in the truth of the gospel that you are on our side in Jesus Christ. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you uh, send forth your spirit and allow us to hear this, this word of invitation into the good life with you through uh, being the church together. Be with us now as our Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, my name is Josh, I'm the pastor here, it's great to be with you. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't, I'm just kidding. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are trellis people and there are vine people. Not really talking about Neil Diamond today. <laughs> Trellis people are the kind of people who would go to a dinner party, a party at someone's house, and spend the whole evening doing a home inspection, checking the foundation, looking up on the roof to see if there's any structural problems with the chimney, uh, wiggling the banister, wanting to just see if everything was, was up to code, everything was on par. That would be a trellis person's idea of a good time. Vine people love the word organic. Vine people just want things to flow naturally. We don't need any rules. We just like whatever seems right, whatever seems good, uh, we'll, we'll do that. We want it to flow naturally. And as we continue to look at the church, what I want us to see is that we need both the trellis and the vine and to see that typically we tend to lean towards one side or the other. Of course, we're not all one or the other. They're extreme forms of both. 
But I think part of reality, part of the way that God has ordained life, reality to work, is that we need this trellis and we need a vine. We need this structure and then we need the living organic thing for it to grow on. Just like a vine growing is just a pile on the ground with leaves that rot and fruit that doesn't grow. It needs the, the, the bones, the, the structure to grow. Just like our bodies, we have the flesh and then we have these hard bones that our flesh needs. Last week we looked at the trellis part of the church, kind of the structure or the organization of the church, uh, and, and how the church really functions like an embassy of the kingdom of God. The church is where uh, a, a body of, of people who call Jesus Lord gather together and they affirm each other's uh, salvation, affirm each other's identity, citizenship uh, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom of God, just like an embassy does. And today we're going to look at the vine, the organic part of what it means to be the church. So if we are here with the organization of the church as an embassy of Jesus' kingdom, what do we do? What, do, what is the growth that we want to see happen? What's the life like of a church? The church is concretely and clearly organizational, and it's also uh, organic. It's, it's, it's an organization, and it also is an organism, and we need both of these things. And when we look at the life of the church, it's just a really, it was a really fun week to study because how Scripture describes the life of the church, the organic part of the church, it's like all the writers of, of the New Testament, they can't pick one metaphor. They can't pick one, one description. So it's just like this explosion, this like kaleidoscope of what the church is like and, and what it does in light of how God designed it. You can think of it kind of like marriage is a, is, a, is a pretty helpful kind of picture because you have the trellis part of marriage, the organization, the institution, if you will, like you sign a legal document, you enter into a legal contract with another person to, to be married. And then, and then consider if that was all that marriage was, which wouldn't be that much fun. If that was like your whole marriage was based on this like piece of paper that you signed with the officiator. And then within marriage, within that structure of commitment, of covenant, of a vow, of a legal standing, you have all kind, you have all the, all these different aspects of of what it means to be married. You can't just pick just one. Is is marriage a place where we just serve one another? Well, that might not be that fun. Is it a place where you experience romance? Well, that might be fun, but you're not going to have any clean clothes. <laughs> is it a place for friendship? Yes. But hopefully there's something different about your friendship with your spouse than like your best bro from college. Is it, is it for procreation? Is it for kids? Yes, but hopefully it's more than that. Otherwise, it's just like running a daycare with someone. It's all of these things, romance, service, friendship, raising children, all these different angles. Uh, talk about what it means to be uh, what it means to be the church. And, or what it means to be married, and we see that same in scripture about the church. There's all these different descriptions, and all of them are true, all of them are necessary, and they help us see uh, what it means to be the church. What was so fun to see this week in the three metaphors we're going to look at today is that the church is the place where we can experience the triune presence of God. God exists in three distinct persons as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we see that he designed the church to live out each part of the each part of the trinity in a specific way what the church does stems from who we are and our triune god so i have uh, three points here 
For see that the church is the Father's family. See that the church is Christ's body. And then we see that the church is the Holy Spirit's temple. Those are the three points we're going to look at. I made a, a little chart. I don't know if that's helpful, but I had fun Googling images. That top one, is this is in your bulletin in the sermon notes section. I Googled vintage church potluck, and that's what came up. So have fun with that. It's kind of small. Before we dive into these points, though, I have four disclaimers, which is way too many, so I apologize. But I have, I have four disclaimers before we, we dive into what it means to be the church organically, what we do as a church. First, we have to see that the church, all of these metaphors, they apply to the people. The church is the people. You don't go to church, you are the church. The church is not a place, it's not a building, an event, a program. It's the people of God united under their king and savior. It's the citizens of a kingdom. The first time we did VBS here, I, we, had a, we supported a missionary. And uh, I... I taught the kids on what we were doing with our missionary. Our missionary was a church planter, and we had two pictures to show what it means to be the church. One is some uh, urban destruction or decay uh, picture. Do you ever see any of those, uh, those blogs? They're like Detroit, all these, all these buildings falling apart. There's this beautiful church that was in decay, and there was like a tree growing right in the middle of a pew. And it's like, is this a church? No. And then it was a picture of a church in Africa, just this group of people having a worship gathering underneath a tree. And so we just want to be clear that the church is the people, which is why we, have can church, we can have church here, we can have church over there, we can have church at the river. The church is the people. You don't go to church, you are the church. That's the first disclaimer. Everything we're talking about, we're not talking about happens here on Sunday mornings at 11. We're talking about happens in the, in the life of this people together. The second disclaimer is that we need all of them. We might be drawn to one of these different pictures. Like if we're the cozy type of person, we're like, let's just be the Father's family. Let's just get together. Let's just eat. And if you're like that, welcome. We, we love people like that. We like to eat here. Or you might be a Christ body person where you just want to do stuff. We are the body. You have a part to play. Let's, let's make all the positions, have a person, and let's get to work we're as, as servants or Maybe we're, we're, we're mystics and we just like the idea of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's great. We need each other, but we can't just pick one. We can't just major in one. We can't be like, oh, this is a family church. Oh, this is a Christ body church. Or, oh, this is a Holy Spirit church. We need all of them. And then the last disclaimer, again, I apologize for all these disclaimers, but I think they're important, is that what we're about to talk about as what the church is as it stems from who God is in, the, in, the, in his triune self, that this is a, a, a beautiful picture of what can be, what could be, what should be, what God designs and equips us to be, but isn't necessarily saying what is. And so I just want to leave space for there to be some hurt as we talk about what scripture teaches the church can and should be, and then what maybe you have experienced in your life. It might stir up bitterness as you realize the gap between what you've experienced in church gatherings and what scripture describes should be the norm. And so I just want to say there's, there's space for pain, there's space for anger, and in the cross of Christ there's space for healing, to be reformed in what God designed the church to be. So please hang tight, hang tight with us. But we're talking about these things because what we do as a church stems from who we are. What we do stems from who we are. Action stems from identity. 
So we're going to look, look at these identities as the father, as the, the family, the body, and the temple. This is a little bit of a survey sermon where we could spend weeks or months or years in, in any one of these passages, but we're just going to look at kind of a, a big picture kaleidoscope of what the church is called to be. So the first one, stepping into the father's family. We're tr- kind of structuring it is we're looking at uh, what, who we are and then what it gives us, what that particular identity gives us. Let me pull up my, where did it go? Excuse me. So the meaning, the identity of being the father's family is that church members experience relational intimacy in a shared identity. Many of us have families, flesh and blood, biological families, and the goal of a, a biological family is relational intimacy where we, where we know each other, we trust each other, we depend on each other, and then there's a shared identity. We have the same last name. We belong in the same family. We have the same father. What we see in the church is shared identity, relational intimacy is based on who our father is, that in Christ we all have the same heavenly father. So looking at the, the shared identity aspect of being the church, this is incredibly applicable to where we are now as uh, in, in our culture, where identity politics is just like run off the rails, where you, it's like the, a challenge to see what tribe you can identify with and then to what degree you can see yourself as the victim. And, and so we're, we're voting from these identity politic tribe, I am like this or I'm not like that. It's getting more and more heated as we try to, as we just look for some place to identify, some group to identify ourselves with. What we see is that God designed the earth, or God designed the church to be the place on earth where his people have their identity. His people have their tribe and their sense of belonging. So flip over to Ephesians 2. Look at a couple passages here. And if you want to rip off the corner of your bulletin or something like that, you can put a bookmark here because we'll be back to it for a later, uh, later on in the sermon. Ephesians 2, verses 18 and 19. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, this is on page 1819. Wow. Did you guys see that? Verses 1819 on page 1819? We should all, I don't know, buy a lottery ticket or something. I Don't do that. Okay, page 1819, verses 1819. For through him, that's Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. This is a great verse for us, a passage for us to start off, because you already see the metaphors being mixed. We're citizens of, of God's people, of his kingdom, and we're also members of his household. A member of your household is the people who are in your family, who belong there. What's beautiful about this passage, and this is one of those that we could spend a long time in, is that Paul is writing to two tribes, two very hostile tribes, the Jews and the not-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they hated each other. They, it was, this wasn't just like, you kind of rub me the wrong way, this is like you're a dog, like you're less than human. And what Paul is saying is that through him both, Jews and not-Jews, have access to the Father by one spirit, and both are part of the same family. Just to see it a little more explicitly, you don't have to turn here. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 
verse 18. Paul's writing and he's, he says, he's quoting God to the Corinthian people. He said, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Pretty straightforward. God of the universe is looking at his people and says, I will be your father. And together you are my sons and daughters. In the context of this passage, he's talking about who do we yoke ourselves with? Who do we make contracts with and, and do life with on a really deep level of trust? And he says, do it with the people of the household of God. Do it with your brothers and sisters because we have the same father. That's one of the beautiful things of adoption as if uh, a child is adopted into a family. He has, now has a father and a mother. But it's not just that. He's now, he can't be separated from being brothers and sisters with the kids that are already in that family. And then lastly, let's actually turn here because this is Jesus. Matthew 12, verses 48. Actually, we'll start in 46. This is page 1516. The words of our King and Savior. This passage is crazy. Brace yourself. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. That's like his biological mother and brothers. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a radical passage where we see Jesus's identity, Jesus's shared identity being so grounded in who his father is, his father in heaven, is that it trumps his biological family. It trumps his earthly family. This is really radical because I feel like a lot of... Family is wonderful. There's all kinds of passages about loving our family, serving our family. We'll get to those at a later date. But what we see is that family, our biological family, is secondary to our identity as, with God as our father. So what does this have for us? What, what, how does this bring us into the good life with God? Well, if you've ever struggled with feeling like an outsider, feeling left out, like you don't belong, consider the degree to which you've experienced life with your father, with your brothers and sisters in the church. Because the truth of the gospel is that you belong in the household of God with brothers and sisters. Your identity is now one who belongs in Christ, in God's household. The second thing we see about being the father's family is relational intimacy. Again, just consider the state of relational intimacy in our current day and age. We all have a huge hunger for it, exhibited by the huge explosion of social media and trying to connect online. If you watch any movie, what is typically the salvation? It's romance. Like, that's how you, you are saved. That's how you experience good is by finding love in another person that you complete. Jerry Maguire, all that stuff. So we clearly are wired for relational intimacy. The question is, is social media working? Is, or is marriage working to satisfy every relational intimacy need that we have? Well, Jesus, giving 
commands to his disciple, giving instructions towards the end of his time on earth, shares this. This is uh, Jesus speaking in John 13, verse 34. It's just one verse, so you don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like to. Jesus speaking in John 13, at the Last Supper, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. See, the, the fathers, Jesus gave us commands as our king and savior to love one another. And that's where one of the key places where we feel, we experience in real life our father's love is through his people, through our brothers and sisters. Do you ever feel unloved and alone? Like nobody, nobody is really caring for you? Consider the degree to which you've, you've bought into the father's family, your identity in Christ in a, in a church family. If you look at our chart, I wanted to look at the, what it means to be the father's family, the, the need that, it, that this particular identity meets. So we looked at the relational intimacy and a shared identity, which makes us uh, experience belonging and love. And then scripture is full of one another commands, where it says, do this to one another, don't do this to one another. There's, I think there's like 60 of them or something. And so I wanted to, to show just a clear command that scripture gives us that we live out, that we play out, that we embody in our church family. Because typically they are commands to how Christians live together, just like Jesus told us to love one another. That's how you will be my disciples is if you love one another. Do you want to love Jesus? Consider how you're loving your brothers and sisters. And this one I thought really captures the idea of a family. Be devoted to one another and brotherly love. Think of the devotion that you see in humans. Even wicked, not Jesus-following pagan people will be devoted to their biological family. This is the, the, the heart of a Christian towards his church families. Be devoted to them. Prioritize them in brotherly love. And then I wanted to end this chart with a practice. So how do, how do we do this? What's the wheels on the ground of this identity? And there's a lot of different ways that this could play out. I just wanted to give us a starting point, as, simply, as simple as possible. Let's spend time together. How do we embody our identity as a family, as a church family, the father's family? Let's spend time together. Just be with each other physically in the same space. Real simply, our Sunday morning gathering is a great place to do that. You guys are crushing that. Good job. And then we have our connecting groups on Tuesday and Wednesday. It's another place where we can go to a, a deeper level of relational intimacy. There's not a lot of sharing that goes on here. There can be some before and after, hopefully not during. But connecting group is where we can get even more relational intimacy. And then, and then the next level is, is beyond the structure. Those are our trellises, our Sunday gathering and our connecting group. And then into the organic. We just meet each other at the park. Go grocery shopping together. Go out to dinner together. Just do simple life things. I'm not talking about big fancy parties with lots of work. I'm talking about just being together the way a family is together. How does your family hang out? What do you guys do? Do you work in the yard together? Then like invite your church family into that. How do you guys have fun? Invite your church family into that. 
I want us to see that we go from this glorious biblical idea of God being our father all the way down to like raking each other's leaves. Do you see, see how the, the, the glorious cosmic truths enter into our daily lives when we embody that as a church? The next identity is that the church is Christ's body where we depend on one another and we have a role to play. It's considered dependency in our culture, which I feel like is just a really live wire. Because to some degree, we have really big extremes where we don't want to depend on anyone or anything. We'll depend on our money, our ability to earn it, ability to fix it. And then there's also the other extreme where we just don't, we depend on everyone all the time and take no responsibility. Just, we're, we're kind of sick on both ends. What does it look like for that, that place where we depend on each other, but we have a part to play? So we're not workaholics killing ourselves and not asking for help ever, and then we're also not just riding on everybody else's work. But instead, we depend and we play our part. So the passage is what Camille read, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, page 1785. We're going to read verses 12 through 13, and we're going to skip to verses 21 through 26. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though it's, all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we, all were, gi- we were all given the one spirit to drink. Skip down to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that, are see, seem, that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I don't feel like this passage needs a lot of explanation. We, we all have a part to play. We're all different parts of the body, and we need each other. We can't say to any part of our church family that we don't need each other, which is to say none of us can say, I don't need the church. None of us can say, I don't need help. None of us can say that I don't need to depend on anyone. We were not meant to do it alone. And so consider, do you ever feel overwhelmed by life? Do you ever just feel like it's wave after wave and you're like, how is any person supposed to be able to handle this? Are you kidding me? The answer is, they're not. The answer is that in Christ, you're meant to be part of a body where we depend on one another. Or on the other end, do you feel frustrated that everybody's so messed up all around you and why can't everybody just get it together and leave you alone and not have problems then you might need to leave let people in you might need to lend your strength if you are in a particular position of strength where you have your life relatively in order then perhaps you have some walls around where you resist letting people in and speak you let people in because you have a part to play Consider in our culture having a, a part to play 
is largely just being a consumer. Or all the, the Dilbert comic, where you just kind of go to the office and you click on some stuff and then you buy stuff, and that's your part to play in our culture. Small duties that feel insignificant or worthless. Look at verse 14 of First uh, Corinthians 12. 1786. I'm going to read through verse 20. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for the, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, one body. Do you ever feel insignificant, like nobody sees you and you don't really have anything to offer? Then consider your participation in the life of the church. Use your gifts. If you don't know your gifts, come to the office. We will find them because you for sure have them. There's just no such thing as an insignificant or bored Christian in Scripture because we all have a part to play, and there's tons of needs. There's tons of brokenness in my own heart, in our church, in our city. There's all kinds of ways to, to buy in and see the, the significance you get as you are used, as you are a part of the body, serving the way God designed you. Turning to our chart Look at the, the one another. We see we get support and significance. That's the human need that the church is designed to meet as we are Christ's body. And then the, we, we got two one another's this time. There's bear one another's burdens. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. This is unbelievably counterintuitive because we want to distance ourselves from sinking ships. We want to swim very, very far away. But here we say that we see the word of God commanding us to bear one another's burdens. If we see someone struggling, we say, how can I struggle with them? How can I take on their struggle to alleviate some of their struggle? Take on part of it to alleviate some of their struggle. And then Galatians says, serve one another. Pretty straightforward, pretty straight out of the life of Jesus, washing feet, serving one another. So how do we play that out here? This isn't maybe as practical as it should be, but we allow others to inconvenience us. And we allow others to serve us. When someone says, do you need help? We say, yes. And we think of a way for them to help us. This is a way that we, we glorify God, where we resist our God complex of trying to do it all by ourselves. We serve and are served. It might be a discipline for some of you gunners out there to say yes to help. And it might be awkward and it might make it harder but we're, the point is not just efficiency. The point is to embody the reality that God made the church to be. And then just very, very practically, serve on Sundays. This isn't a, a show um, or a performance. This is where the body gathers for worship and the word. And people serve to make this happen between brewing coffee and preaching and leading worship and um, arranging the chairs and all, all that stuff. There's all kinds of things that we can serve serving in the kids. Huge shout out to our kids servants. Um, so if you feel like you don't have a place to, a part to play, I guarantee you, you do. Uh, we, we love to like move forward in our hospitality. If you're a visitor here, I'm sorry if it was awkward coming, 
we want to make this a hospitable place where you know where to go and what to do and, and, what, and what's happening and are greeted. And so we could get a hospitality team serving. If you uh, want to embody the reality, if you want to feel significant, if you want to make deeper connections, consider serving on Sundays. Very simple. God does great things through it. The last, the last metaphor we get for identity as a church is that the church is the Holy Spirit's temple. And what this means is that God identifies himself with the church, uh, with the people of the church, the members of the church, and dwells with them in a profound way. So the temple metaphor might largely be lost on us because we don't necessarily have temples. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and the church was uh, instituted, the temple was a place where the presence of God dwelt especially we had tabernacles until we got to the temple. There's been a couple different iterations of the temple, uh, but it was a, the place w- that was set apart for God's presence. It was a holy place where God's presence dwelled. If you have your uh, bookmark in, flip back to Ephesians 2, page 1819. And we see that in our current day and age, as the church, the church, the people, not this building or that room or anything like that, the people are where God's presence especially dwells on the earth. God's presence on the earth dwells with his people in the local church. Look at verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's Household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to be become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Mm. We see uh, again this passage is so loaded with metaphors because we're citizens, we're members of God's household, and now, based on the chief cornerstone, Jesus, we're becoming a holy temple built together to become a dwelling place for God. Which is to say that this is where one of the key places that we experience the presence of God. All of us have the Holy Spirit if we've trusted in Jesus. But we see the Bible teaching that corporately, together, when we are living life together, is is one of the ways that God's Spirit dwells. One of the ways that we individually experience God's presence is through our brothers and sisters. Flipping back to 2 Corinthians 6. You don't have to turn there. Uh, You can if you want. Looking at verses... 16 and 17. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. So we see both of these identities, both of these aspects of being the temple. We see that God's presence dwells with his people, especially. 
And we see that God's people are called to be holy or set apart, just like the temple. And I tried to pick the most like cluttered, kind of overwhelming temple picture in your chart because back in the day, there was lots of ornate specialness to try to create specialness in the temple. And we see that, um, and we see that all of that has kind of gone away because it can just be people underneath a tree. That they're, they're set apart and special uh, from the world. There was a, a place where God's presence dwelt back in the, the old times, in the Old Testament. And now that is in us, out in the world. God's presence has now been released on the world through his people. Which is to say his people are meant to not be like the world. God's presence dwells with his people, which means his people are to be different, distinct, set apart. Which isn't to say we're going to buy some land and start a convent. It's just to say that our lives can and should be marked by the presence of God to be different, to treasure things different than the world treasures, whether it's comfort and security or people liking us or having power and significance. We, all of our treasures, everything that we seek is no longer stuff or approval, but it's now our Father, the presence of God, communion with Him. And so does God ever feel distant Consider, it's not always this, but consider the depth of your fellowship with the people who have a spirit. Consider the depth of your participation in the life of the body where he dwells on the earth. And consider the apartness that you experience in your life with God's people. How different are you from the world? Are we just as stressed and busy and worried about money and chasing after stuff like everybody else or is there a difference there looking to our chart the human need is the presence of God that's what we need which is where where all the other needs are met support, significance, love, belonging And so what are the one another's where we can obey the commands and embody this speak to one another the rest of that is in truth and love Speaking in general is good, but it's best when it's in truth and love. And then this passage in 1 John, I think, is just so vivid. It says, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So as we love one another, we, we will experience God's presence. As we receive love from others, we'll experience God's presence. So practice, what does this look like as we speak up? Some of us need to speak less, probably. But a lot of us can speak up because you have the spirit inside of you. You can share a truth, share a good word, share the good news. Whether that's just like, I see God working in you. Or thank you for doing that. All kinds of simple speaking to each other is one of the ways that we extend the presence of God. We can share our hearts with each other. Because when we're sharing our hearts with our church family, we are sharing our hearts with God. And then, this is super hard. We listen with expectancy. When someone in our church family is speaking to us about our lives, not in like some big, huge rebuke or admonishment, just asking questions, uh, we, we listen just saying, what might God be telling me through this brother or sister? It's not saying that it's thus says the Lord and we have to do everything that everybody says all the time. We just have a curiosity, an openness. Like, what might God be telling me through my brother or sister? There is love of God that we miss out if we are apart from his temple where his spirit dwells, which is his people. There's 
there's wisdom and counsel and guidance that we miss out on if we uh, live apart or live shallowly with God's people and where his presence dwells. My, the cry of my heart is that I hope this is beautiful to you. I hope this feels like, oh, kind of like a, a relief or like a hope as we all press into this together. There's an invitation to us as a church family uh, as we're seeking to be revitalized in this season of our, our church's life uh, to, to turn to the Bible's description of the church and, and be it and do it. God's design for our life with him is to be deeply united with his people as a family, as um, supported servants, and also with his presence. And again, I just want to acknowledge the fact that if you've been around church any length of time, it probably hasn't been, you know, 100% your experience, what we're talking about today. It hasn't been mine. So I... I just want to give space for this to be hitting on wounds or hitting on huge lack, huge gaps that you've experienced in your church life uh, and, and just what the biblical vision is compared to reality. And so let's be honest about that with each other and connecting groups. Let's be honest about where we have been hurt. There is someone who I had kind of constant in the past, kind of these weird run-ins and couldn't figure it out. turns out he'd been like super hurt by a pastor in the, in the past. And we were able to talk about that and just help me know how to love him in, in, in light of that. This is a safe place to talk about bad things that have happened in church. We, in our theology here, we know that sin is real. And so we're not surprised when humans sin. Let's also be honest that we'll fall short. But this is not like, all right, tomorrow, boom, let's go do all of these things as we try to do this, it might be awkward, we might stumble. We can just say, hey, you know what I'm trying to do right now? I'm trying to play my part. I don't know if I'm doing a good job, but that's what I'm trying to do. Can you, can you help me? We can just be open-handed like that because we need Jesus. We all know that we need Jesus. We all know that each other needs Jesus in grace, which is why this temple is all contingent on Jesus being the cornerstone. Everything, every brick that's laid in the temple of God, his people here is laid on our cornerstone, Jesus. Christ died for the church. He laid down his life, gave up his life for the church so that the church might be a bride, which is another metaphor. He died for the brokenness, the blemishes, the shortcomings that happen in the life of humans that are not yet perfected. And so when we step into these realities and we try to really live them out and practice, we're going to need Jesus real bad. We're going to need lots and lots of grace for ourselves and for each other. And so if you want to cherish the gospel more, press into life with the church, not because it'll be perfect, but because it won't be, and we'll need grace in the deep parts of our souls. So after being honest about this, let's press in, trust our choice cornerstone and listen y'all let's be let's be defined by god's word and not our experience let's be defined by what god's word calls us to and not the wounds that we have experienced in the past so where does this vision start in a word it starts with you if we all go out and just wait for people to call us to be family with us then it might not go that well it starts with all of us in faith initiating, whether that's time with someone or that's trying to serve on Sunday, starts with you, initiate. 
And if I had to just boil all this down into one thing, one thing to pray about and try and consider what it could look like for you is time. What does it look like for you to give more time, the great equalizer, rich and poor, same amount, more time to be with God's people? What, what would be the next step? I'm not saying jump in to the deep end all the way. What's the next step uh, in more time? Maybe it's just come back next week, just worship with us again next Sunday. Maybe it's try a connecting group on Tuesday or Wednesday night and just show up and see what, what happens there. Or maybe it's just reach out to someone and go have fun, go to the park or go have dinner, whatever. Consider what might be the next step for you to just get extra time than what you're spending now, more time than what you're spending now with the people of God. To say, God, I'm doing this because I want you. I'm doing this because I want to flourish. Would you use this, this meager effort? to make me more like Jesus. Just take one next step. Let me pray.